appreciate you being here this evening. Open your Bibles up, if you would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I want to continue looking with you at this first verse. Also, would like for you to mark in your Bibles, if you would, uh, just briefly. We want to reference some scriptures tonight, and I want you to be prepared. Ephesians, chapter 1. And John, chapter 2. really feel like uh, this week has uh, been changing my life, not just words. God's been doing some fantastic things in my life. One of the things He's been doing in my life over the past year, I would say, but it's been progressively getting uh, more blatant, is He's been forcing me or at least through the Word, it's been coming up over and over and over, and of course my circumstances as well, has been pointing me to see my life in light of the kingdom. To see my daily living in light of the kingdom. Okay? Um, that seems to, change my, seems to change my daily circumstances. Because in the daily circumstances of life, uh, whatever job you may have, whether you're a carpenter, whether you're a basketball player, NBA basketball player, uh, you know, whether you're a minister, a uh, full-time pastor, let's say, or an evangelist, whether you're a factory worker. See, when you begin to see your life in light of the kingdom of God and your, your function in that, things change. Uh, we, we talk a lot about this to especially teenagers because there's such peer pressure and, you know, you've got the, in high school, you've got the cool crowd and then you've got the not so cool crowd. I was always in the, kind of always in the not so cool crowd, still kind of in the not so cool crowd, <laughs> kind of feel comfortable there. It's the Nazareth syndrome. You, I don't know if you'd understand it. Uh, but in high school, especially with teenagers, we find that, you know, there is, uh, there is that peer pressure and they begin to accept the, they begin to accept the identity or they begin to accept uh, kind of the perspective that they receive from other people. Okay? You get picked on and, and you get pushed around and you see yourself in light of the way that other people see you. See, what would happen... See, what would happen if you begin to see your life through the perspective of the scriptures and see your life in the perspective of the kingdom that there is not, you're not just living in a day-to-day, run-of-the-mill shuffle of life, but there is an eternal destiny that is placed upon you. That would change your circumstances. That would change your daily circumstances to begin to see your life in the idea that God has created me that I am absolutely significant, that I have a purpose, that He created me out of His dreams. Um, Really begin to notice this plan language uh, in several different places. Ephesians chapter 1, I wanted to to bring your attention to this just briefly. See, I, I somehow have to believe that my son was not an accident. People say this all the time, how are you going to raise him on the road? Well... See, I have to believe that this, what's going on with my son is the same thing that's going on with my wife and myself. We were tailor-made for each other. There was no one else I've known that would ever put up with me in our life. I'm serious. Okay, Watch the amens, Ellen. 
And uh, people, uh, people say, I bet it's so difficult to be on the road. I, I am tailor-made for this life. There is no other life that I would rather have. Sure, there's hards, uh, hard times. And, and sure, you get into the grass is greener on the other side of the, uh, 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 you know, the grass is greener on the other side syndrome. But I, I am built for this life. And as my wife and I share this life together on the road, um, people always ask her, isn't that hard? And she says, no. She's so different than other women. She's, she's just tailored. We fit together perfectly. And it's, it's a tailor patterned by God. God created me and he created Krenda and he put us together. And this is a purpose that, that we are serving in his plan. Okay. Now, people say, wow, boy, I wonder what CJ. Well, see, that I don't think that way. Because certainly if CJ came from Krenda and I or put together in God's plan, then he fits in that picture. And there may be adjust, uh, adjustments that I'm going to need to make according to where God is going to take us, but I'm fine with that. See, because this is his plan that I'm not... See, the idea is, is that I'm not forcing myself or forcing God into my plan. I am literally living in response to his plan. And to be quite frank with you, I don't have to do this for the rest of my life. I could take a pastor, pastor it and be rich, you know, and uh, uh, have a big house like uh, Mark Strickland's. And, and I could get out and, and have a job, see? I could have a real life. Okay? I could actually have Friday nights off instead of pulling 1,100 miles in, in one day. Okay? I don't have to do this. See, whatever he's into, wherever he's taking my wife and I and my family, see, I'm just living in response to his plan. And that plan, again, and you've heard this before, that plan has just not come about when I was born. See, somehow, get this, if you can, this would change your life, if before the foundations of the world, before the foundations of the world and this plan even start to unfold, God said, I desperately need a factory worker right here. That my plan will not be complete without that guy. I desperately need a carpenter. I desperately need a young guy in Norco, California. I desperately need a... I desperately need a pastor here. I desperately need this kind of a person here. And he saw my life. He saw my life as significant and dreamed me up physically. I mean, just the inner workings of my personality. And I am tailor-made to fit not an earthly plan, but an eternal plan. Which means that I have a plan not only here that's unfolding in my life, but there is a plan that's going to be unfolding for my life or in my life, <laughs> around my life. I'm going to be sucked into an eternal plan. Okay? Not my material, and it's not just revelation stuff. Uh, Paul talks about this. Man, this is powerful. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Listen, we're going to read through just a little bit of this. Praise be to God the... Uh, to, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You realize that Christ was thought about before the foundation of the world? Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. See, he predestined me to be found in Christ Jesus means he predestined this life. Go down a few verses to verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ 
to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. In other words, when the time of God's plan, when the timing of God's plan is, is, at, its, is at its point where it's supposed to be in His will, then that takes place. Now, let me just break right there. We begin to see some of this surface in the Gospel of John. The hour, or uh, and that's the New King James translation, or the King James translation. The hour, or the NIV says the time, uh, is really significant uh, for Jesus. As you begin to move through the Gospel of John, Jesus is always talking about the hour. In chapter 2 at the wedding feast, his mother comes up to him and says, Hey, we have this big issue. Uh, they're out of wine. They were at this wedding, and you know how it is, never enough wine at weddings. So they had this big issue. It's, it's, it's come about. They've ran out of wine at the wedding. And she, she pushes this on Jesus, uh, or at least pulls him into it. And Jesus says, Hey, my hour, my time has not yet come. Okay? And he's talking about the unfolding of the plan of God in his life. By the time you come to chapter 7, his brothers, and it's before this as well, but his brothers are pressuring him to go to the feast. And he says, listen, for you, any time is right. You do what you want to do when you want to do it. But for me, the time is not right. And his time is marked by the plan of God and the unfolding of events according to his will. And so Jesus says, I'm not going. Why? Because the time for him to go to the feast had not yet come. And as soon as they leave for the feast, then he goes, which was his time. Okay? So Jesus lives in accordance to God's plan, the timing of that. God, God speaks, God moves, God, and Jesus responds. Okay? So this time aspect is really significant. And of course, uh, he just mentioned it. He just mentioned it here in verse 10, I think it was. Verse 11 In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to his plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise uh, of his glory. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now get that. You were marked with the seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In other words, see, this is just a start. This is just a start. And the real inheritance, the real deal is going to take place in eternity. Which tells me that the plan of God that He has in my life is an eternal destiny type of plan that I am meant for a, for a bigger purpose than just here on earth. And this is just a deposit. This is just the start. I'm just getting in on what He really has for me in the eternities. Which is wonderful. It is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of His glory. Paul talks about it. It's the idea of this plan, Revelation chapter 1. It's the idea of this plan. Now, just, man, if I could encourage you, and man, you've been overwhelmed this week, you've been overloaded this week, and as I look out at you sometimes, I see your eyes blinking and the tilt, you know, the tilt lever is going over and, you know, you're beginning to, you know, <laughs> overload or whatever it is you're doing. Um, but if you can grab a hold of what we've been embracing this week, it changes the daily circumstances of your life, man. Amen. That, I, that the, uh, the, the plan of God that is unfolding in my life, the same as, as it unfolded for Joseph, God is protecting that plan. He's bringing me to, to, to fulfillment in His time. He's bringing me somewhere which is not just an earthly thing, it's an eternal thing. 
Okay? The plan of God. Revelation chapter 1. We've been getting into this, and of course we're going to expand this a little bit more this evening in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, you can also translate that messenger, to his servant John, really quickly. Uh, as we've been finding in the book of Revelation, this is a prophecy. And it's a prophecy about the future. And like with all prophecy, it's not concerned about times and dates. It's not, it's not a timeline to figure out uh, when certain events are going to happen. That's not the emphasis. Of course, there is times and, uh, and dates. There is uh, a timeline of events that are going to take place. But the, em the emphasis on the prophecy is not on those times and dates to find out when they are. But the emphasis of the book of the prophecy is on the person. It's on the message. It's on him. Okay. Now he says this with these first three verses. These are the words before the prophecy. So what happens is, is John gets this prophecy and all that's going to transpire and he sets it over here on this table. He backs away and he wants to describe it. He wants to try to, uh, he wants to try to prepare his reader. More than anything, he wants to put boundaries on this prophecy because he knows how we are because he knows how he is. So he wants to put boundaries on this prophecy so we stay within the limits of what the prophecy's aim is. And that's the first three verses. We looked at the beginning, and so we've been starting with the first verse, but we've looked at the beginning of this. John refers to this prophecy as a revelation, and we found out, an unveiling of Jesus Christ. So for John, typical of his language, as we're going to find, that this, this prophecy, the message is no different than what he's always been used to. He's always heard the same thing. In other words, the book of Revelation, which is about eternal matters in part, does not change. In other words, we were not going to live here uh, for a number of years and however long that may be, 80 years, and experience something here, and then that's going to be totally scrapped, and we'll start all over in heaven. Somehow, from the book of Revelation's perspective, this prophecy's perspective, that what has begun here is going to continue to be done there, and it's a part of this long-range plan of God. Okay? It's a part of this long-range plan of God. Before the foundations of the world, this plan was, in, was, was instilled. It was active. It was in the mind of God. He brought us before he even made us. He was bringing us to the point where he wants to bring us in the book of Revelation. The long-range plan of God. Okay? It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which means, you understand, that when you come into the book of Revelation, and we saw this in Ephesians, that all the plan of God is found in him. All the plan of God is found in him. He predestined us in Christ. So he describes this prophecy. It is the unveiling of the person. That the answer to every single issue in our life, here and there, is in him. It's in Christ. Everything is in Christ. Now he gives content to that statement. The unveiling of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, when he's unveiled, what you're going to find in him is that which God gave him. Which really was stretching for me because I could understand Jesus living out of the resource here on earth but see when you get to heaven I kind of guess I always had the picture or kind of always had the uh, I was always under the impression that that was going to be different there but what we begin to find is is what John the language that he uses to describe Jesus on earth is the same language he uses to describe Jesus in eternity the same language that he uses to describe Jesus here is the same language that he uses to describe him here 
If you were to walk up to Jesus on earth and split him with a knife down the middle and grab his chest and yank it apart, what you would see is that which God gave him. That language is all over John's Gospel. It's all over the New Testament. If you were to go up to him in heaven, grab a knife and slit him if you could, and open up his chest, what you're going to see with him in heaven is the same thing, that which God gave him. That the same spirit, the same resource that he lived out of here, the same life that he experienced here is the same life there. Okay? The unveiling of Jesus Christ, you see, which God gave him. This morning we looked at the purpose statement. The purpose of that is not just to demonstrate the kind of lifestyle that you and I are going to live, because okay? Jesus comes to these seven churches of Asia Minor and he unveils himself to them. He is the answer. In other words, he's saying, every issue in your problem is addressed by me. Okay? As I allow the Father to resource my life and to handle every issue in my life, hey, you are to be allowing that to go on in your life. In other words, I am going to come, I'm the answer, and I'm going to handle every single issue in your life. So the answer to all the issues in these seven churches is Him. Did you get that? I'm moving kind of quickly. The answer to all the seven churches is Him. The answer to all the seven churches is Him. As the answer to, all in, to everything in Christ's life was the Father, the answer, three, the answer to everything in our life is Him. Amen. See, He says that to the seven churches. He pops up to the church of Ephesus, got this big issue, and He unveils Himself and He says, I'm the answer. I am the answer. Lean on me. Embrace me. Seek after me. Return to me. Okay? That's the purpose. It's the demonstration of the same kind of life that he lived. But what I also found interesting, which is powerful, is this demonstration of this life. We've been, of course, the language we use is it's a cross style. It's the, it's the uh, uh, nothing that's revealed in Jesus is for himself. Which again, changes my perspective. Jesus is the heavenly king, which means what? Well, he's in heaven eating grapes. Yeah, he's in heaven eating grapes. He's got a Dodge truck and a uh, big mansion, okay? He's not there much because he pulls a fifth wheel. But, uh, you know, he's cruising around the countryside, the New Jerusalem. He's at the RV park, shuffleboard, and golfing. Yep, working on his golf game. And it's, it's just the big retirement. And, 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 of course, everybody, you know, is just serving him, and he has servants. And See, that's the idea of the king. See, it's, it's big, whatever you want to call that. But when you begin to look at Jesus in heaven, see the same, and this is unbelievable almost, it's almost, it's so radical that some wouldn't even call it heaven. It's so radical that some wouldn't call it heaven. Because the same style he lived here is the same style you see in the eternities. Here he was pouring out his life. Here he was the suffering servant. Here he was never living for himself. Here he walked around with a constant, how can I meet your need? How can I meet your need? How can I help you succeed? Hey, how can I serve you? How can I? That was his here. When you go into heaven, it's the same thing. He's sitting at the right hand of a God in an eternal setting, interceding for you. It's still in heaven. How can I meet your need? How can I help you succeed? How can I? None of this stuff is for himself. None of the, none of the unveiling, uh, the unveiling that which God gave him times in the, in the second and third chapter to these seven churches, none of that is focused on Jesus. Every time he is unveiled, the core heart of who he is, which is the Father, is all about you. Okay? Purpose. The purpose of the unveiling of Jesus Christ is for you. So which tells you, now hear this, every time that God moves in your life, every time he unveils truth to you, every time he slaps right down, right smack dab in the middle of your circumstance and reveals himself, it's for your benefit. 
He's trying to save you. That's Now, again, I don't know, and again, I'm not too churchy, even though I'm in church all the time, I still don't consider myself kind of a, a religious person. When I became a Christian, uh, I, for me, it wasn't joining a club or, uh, you know, it wasn't um, a ticket to heaven. It wasn't anything for that. Jesus Christ saved my life. And for me, it was evident. He reached down right, just right in the middle of my world and I was on the fast track and was seeing it and couldn't go. I, I was headed that way, couldn't stop it. And Jesus Christ entered my life and saved me. And all the truth that I was finding in Him was for the purpose of helping me. There was, there was nothing in it for Him at all. And I kept asking my questions, why me? You don't want me. <laughs> he called me to preach and I said, you're making a mistake, man. Not that I'm, you know, hey, I'll do it, but... There's so many other people with better qualities. There's so many other people who are more suited for this. They come from the right family. They come from the right... There's, there's nothing in this for you. But see, that's just how He is. Every time He unveils truth in your life, no matter how you see it, understand that it's for your good and respond. And the response has to be absolutely immediate. It's to the, for the purpose to show His servants what must soon take place or to show His servants what must take place right now. That when Jesus speaks to me in my life, it's so crucial that I have to respond as soon as I possibly can. It's immediate. There's no delay. There's no thinking about it. It's he speaks and I say, yes, I trust you. And of course, that's modeled in the Old Testament. You have men that live by faith. They trust. He speaks. All right. I trust you. I trust that you know what's best for me. I trust that you. I just, hey, I trust you. He speaks, we respond. Now, the next part. He made it known by sending his messenger to his servant, John. I choose the translation messenger instead of angel. I don't know if we'll get to that tomorrow or not. He made it known by sending his angel or messenger to his servant, John. The it, what he made known, he made it known, what he made known is the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which at the core, when, you, when Jesus is unveiled, it's that which God gave him, and the purpose of that is to show his servants what must take place right now. That is what's made known. This is a statement by John. John says, he made it known by sending his messenger to me. He made it known. He made this revelation, which is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place. He made it known. So the it is the first statement in the first verse. Do you see that? That is it. That's what he's making known, okay? The unveiling of Christ. Now, the, the Greek term in my translation, it's translated, he made it known. He made it known is actually one Greek word. One Greek word. NIV translate it, he makes it known, or he made it known. The New King James translates it, he signified it, I think. Is that correct? He signified it, which is sign language. Okay? Not sign language, but sign. Sign language. Okay? Sign language. You didn't get us trying to be funny. It's sign language, which is kind of, again, it's typical language that John has used in his gospel. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this language because it's really significant for the book. Because everything that takes place in the gospel of John, John tells us, hey, how did he make this known? It was sign language. Sign language. That's how he made it known. So we need to familiarize ourselves a little bit with the idea of what a sign is. So I want you to jump back with me, if you would, to uh, the book of John, chapter 2. And I'm going to look, to look with you at two signs. Okay? I want to look with you 
at two signs. When you come back into uh, this setting, chapter 2, it's the first sign in John's Gospel. Okay? It's the first sign in John's Gospel. Now what you need to know about a sign is that a sign is, for John, it's his miracle. John translates them miraculous sign, but the word miraculous is not there. Uh, this, is, this language is so significant, it's used 17 times in his Gospel. And every time you see a sign, which is normally a miracle, but not always, uh, there is something that's beneath the surface that's significant. Okay, there's something beneath the surface of what's taking place that's significant. In other words, the, the physical details of the sign itself, are you with me? The physical details of the sign itself are not what's significant, it's the meaning behind those events. Okay? Now in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, the sign is the wedding at Cana. And you know a little bit about this. Jesus comes, he's been invited to this wedding. Kind of always thought that he just crashed this wedding party, but that wasn't true. Uh, he was invited, it tells us. Verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. So he got a, he got a you know, little thing in the mail come and he came, brought with him. 12 people. So um, he shows up to this wedding and of course when he's there he finds himself in the midst of this circumstance where uh, the, and it's a social, uh, it becomes a social issue, uh, they're out of wine. Okay, they're out of wine. It would have looked bad on the groom's family. They're out of wine. So mom gets involved. Mary gets involved. Doesn't want to see, uh, doesn't want to see that happen. So she goes up to Jesus and pulls him into it. There's some hesitation, but he ends up, uh, he ends up getting involved with it. In verse 6, you see him as he now has these servants that have been brought to him. Okay? Mary tells the servants in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay? So she takes these servants, she brings them up to Jesus and says, Hey, listen, they're for you. Hey, whatever he says, you do it. So Jesus is now in charge of this issue. In verse 6, he gives instruction. Now, this is very, very significant. This is a sign. This is a sign. By the time you come down to verse 11, we know that this is a sign. This is a significant event. There's something that John wants to tell us through this event. Jesus begins it. He gives them instruction. Okay? He says in verse 6, Nearby stood six stone water jars... The kind used by the Jews. In other words, he's telling you what kind of jars. They just aren't any jars. Okay, They're not just any jars. They're the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. And he says that each of them holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So these are big jars. They're the kind that are designated for ceremonial washing, which has to do with Old Covenant type of stuff. Okay, Old Covenant type of stuff. Jesus grabs these, uh, grabs these servants and says, Hey, listen, do you see those six... Stone water jars, the ceremony one, that's right, that one, that one, that one, and he points them out, and he tells them, in verse 7, fill these jars with water, and they do so. They fill them with water, okay, they fill them to the brim, completely full. They come back to Jesus. Now note, he's been in charge, now get this, he's been charged, he's been put in charge of the wine issue. So far, they haven't dealt with the wine issue. So far, they've been lassoed into the ceremonial washing jars being filled up, which has nothing to do with wine. They come back to him, they're filled, with, they're filled with water. Jesus probably grabs one of them and says, now listen, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. At this point, really, there's no miracle that's being done. And we don't even know if the, we don't know the miracle actually takes place until you get down to the middle when the man actually hands this to the uh, master of the banquet, whatever he takes this water that he's drawn out, uh, he takes it to the master of the banquet. It's at that time we realize that the miracle took, miracle took place. So in other words, when the, one of the servants goes back to draw out some water and take it to the master of the banquet, we don't know that it was wine at that point. Are you with me? 
So knowing that it wasn't wine at that point, and these were ceremonial washing jars, he probably would have taken a basin, which is what you would have put that water in. The kind of basin, okay? The kind of basin that they would have used. He wouldn't have taken a ladle. <laughs> you don't drink that. That's ceremonial washing. You want to drink, you go down to the kitchen. Stay away from the ceremonial washing water. You don't drink that. So he wouldn't have went over there and got a glass or a ladle. He wouldn't have went over and put that in a washing basin. And it says that he takes it up to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet turns around, looks in it. He doesn't see water. He sees wine. Now, odd enough, the story ends. And John says, this is the first of his miraculous signs. And you're sitting there scratching your head. And because a lot of you are Nazarenes, you say, well, that's the... <laughs> and we come up with our own little thing about it. The first example of Welch's grape juice. Okay? That's, that's what it was. No. This is the first of his miraculous signs. This was a significant event. There's meaning behind it. Jesus could have put... Now think about this. Jesus could have put that water in anything. He specifically chose ceremonial washing jars. He could have said, go down to the kitchen. Grab some pots. Go down to the... He, said, he could have said, go down to the kitchen and get wine, you know, wine vats. Okay? Wine skins. Could have filled them up with water and saved the, you know, saved the trouble of taking, because you know they took the wine and put it in wine vats after this was done. Could have saved him the trouble. He could have said, go down and get some wine skins, filled them with water, and then wham, it'd have been a great miracle. Could have done that. But he specifically chose ceremonial washing jars. Now, why did he do that? Because this is a sign. This is a sign that shows that he is a fulfillment of that old covenant practice. That we as Christians are not ceremonially clean because of washing our hands with ceremonial washing and going through the traditions of the elders, but we are ceremonially clean in Christ Jesus. Okay? It's a sign. Now, that really tipped me off when I began to, uh, to study this. Tipped me off to some of his other signs. I begin to find it remarkable that a majority of his signs that are done always shuts down old covenant traditions of the ways that they fulfilled the law. Okay? So a lot of, very important, a lot of what we see in John with this sign language is fulfillment language. Jesus is coming and, and, and literally the plan of God, stay with me on this, the plan of God that he began before the foundations of the earth, he began to instill that plan in the Old Testament with all kinds of prophecies and all kinds of typologies. Jesus came and he began to fulfill that. All that was finding its meaning in him. The Old Testament lamb did not mean a thing outside of Christ. The only reason the lamb meant anything in the Old Testament was because the real lamb was coming in the foreknowledge of God. If Jesus never came, that lamb was, I mean, come on. It was a, it was a lamb. Okay? It wasn't worth anything. So these signs of Jesus, as you begin to find here, are the, are, are the fulfillment of this plan as God is bringing it to pass. Make sense? It's John language. It's sign language. Now, there are two different words. Revelation chapter 1. hate to make you flip like this. Well... It's kind of funny watching you, but that's, I mean, I apologize for it. In chapter 1, he uses sign language, really significant. One of the things you're going to find is when you begin to look at these sign words that John uses, there are two different words. Both have the same concept of the deeper meaning behind the text, which has, it's tied into the plan of God, not directly in the word, but in the, in the concept of how John uses it, it's tied into the fulfillment of prophecy, it's the bringing along of the plan, it's finding its significant meaning in Christ, its significance and meaning in Christ, 
Okay? The word sign means that. Both words mean that. But the one that word that he uses here in this sentence, the word we translate signified in the New King James, the word we translate he made it known in the NIV, that word sign is only used six times in our New Testament. It's only used six times in our New Testament. Okay? The other word sign, John uses a ton, uses it more than any other author, and it's used all over the New Testament. But in the New Testament, this word sign is only used six times, and John, I think, uses it three of those times, maybe four of those times. Four if you count Revelation. Okay? So he uses the majority of the time. Now the difference, okay, the difference between this word for sign and the other word for sign is this word sign is a sign that is almost a mixture of a prophecy. It has a future deal to it. This word sign is a fulfillment word. It's a, it's a message that has a deeper meaning behind it. It's a story that has a deeper meaning, which is not a fulfillment of the past, but it is a proclamation of the future. It's almost reverse. John's sign language... <laughs> i got to say a new way to say that. Teens will have a blast with me. John's sign language is oftentimes a fulfillment of what God has been doing in the plan of God of finding its meaning in Christ. This sign language is still the meaning in Christ, but it has nothing to do with the past. I mean, not directly to the past. It has a slant or an emphasis to the future. Okay? So in other words, when you come into the book of Revelation and you begin to move into this language that he's using, it has, it has, references, it has references to the future. So in other words, all that he's saying, get this, all that he's saying here in the book of Revelation is sign language, okay? Sign language, the fulfillment of Christ that has to do with our future. Has to do with our future. Now, you come into the book of Revelation, I want to run you across a couple of these, a couple of these verses. I want you to flip over with me, if you would, back to Revelation chapter 21. And while you're flipping there, I want to give you an example of this idea of the future prophecy. Now, again, this is, let this stretch you a little bit, okay? This has been really stretching for me. Before the foundations of the world, God thought of Jeremiah Bullock, okay? All that he had dreamed, all that he had been building through the Old Testament, my heritage, all the steps that he was taking to fulfill the promises that he made in Christ are taking place in my day, in me, in my life. That I am a part of that heritage. I'm a part of that heritage. Okay? But my heritage, see that inheritance is just in part right here. Oh, teens, this will change your perspective of high school. See, all of that heritage is just, we're only getting into the deposit right here. The real fulfillment of that inheritance is seen in the future. For instance, Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter, don't turn here, Matthew, I'll just read it to you really quickly, in Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, the subject comes up about, you know, uh, we have left everything to follow you, what then will there be for us? You know, what's the reward? Okay, what's the reward? There's 12 disciples, okay? They're following Jesus. And of course, we see the unfolding of the plan in Christ for them in the book of Acts. The mission. But Jesus doesn't talk about Acts at that point. Okay? He doesn't talk about Acts. He says, what's the real deal? Listen to what he says in verse 28. I tell you the truth. That's verily, verily I say unto you, or amen, amen, at the renewal of all things. Where is that talked about? 
New Jerusalem language. Okay? New Jerusalem language. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That the 12 disciples, their purpose was not completed or identified really solely by their mission here on earth. That the real deal for the 12 disciples is an eternal purpose. See, the real purpose of their life the, and the overall plan of God was not just an earthly thing, it was an eternal thing. They say, what's in it for us? Now, what are we going to get? He doesn't talk about acts. He talks about, hey, there is an eternal purpose for your life. Would you, would you see, how would that change the way you'd go to work every day? In my mind, that blows out of the water depression. And I don't want to talk about depression. But that, see, that changes the way that I think about things. That I'm passing through. I have a t-shirt that says that. Just passing through. This character on the front of it. I'm just passing through. I'm on an eternal plan. Everything in my life, folks, deteriorates. I drive a f my home down the road, which is the equivalent of taking your house and going through an earthquake, a typhoon, a uh, tornado every week. And I come in and nails are popping out of the wall and I take my shoe and I knock them back in. I'm thinking, man, stay in place. <laughs> a couple more years. Okay. Stay in place. Don't fall apart. Okay? Everything in my life deteriorates. My, 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 my home, my, my flesh... I'm deteriorating. I'm deteriorating. I'm getting older. Okay? I'm not old, but, uh, you know, I'm getting older. I'm getting older. Okay? Everything in my life is deteriorating. In the name of Jesus, the plan for my life in the eternal setting is not deteriorating. Okay? In other words, the eternal plan of God for my life is not determined by physical things. That there is all in this, in this life, John says, you, Jesus says in John, in this life you will have trouble. But you understand, when you begin to see your life, Jesus saw his life, not in terms of the temporal, just think, he saw his life into the eternal plan of... And as I begin, and I'm, I'm still researching some of this, but as you begin to go through the New Testament, I begin to find over and over that the New Testament writers and Jesus, more than I expected him to, is constantly grabbing his disciples and just... Listen, see your life in light of the eternal kingdom. When I go to teen camp, it's more than just teens shaping up and not having sex before marriage. There is eternal consequences to that week. Not just here, but there. There is eternal consequences to that week. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 21. As I begin to read through, and I'm only going to have you turn here and then back to Revelation chapter 2. But as you begin to read, again, this New Jerusalem scene, which we don't know a lot about, and I'm speculating on a lot of this. But when you begin to look at this New Jerusalem scene, a lot of what I'm reading here is reminiscent of uh, garden language. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created not for immediate retirement, but they were created for purposes. Give me a purpose of Adam. What did he have to do? Name the animals. Okay, horse. <laughs> All right, pig. All right. All right. Rat. Snake. Okay. Had legs at that time. Maybe called him lizard. There was all kinds of, there were the naming of the animals. There was, all, there was the function of Adam and Eve in eternity. Now, we see there's going to be things that are going to have to be dealt with. Uh, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth 
For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Well, that's neat. I wonder if it means no boating. Verse 2, and I saw a holy city, a city. You know what that means? I wonder if we're going to have to have plumbing in the New Jerusalem. I wonder if we're going to have plumbing. In the, I wonder if we're going to have electricity. I wonder if there, will be, if there will be roles that will need to be fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. You have a city. You have all kinds of things that are designed. Up here, focus up here. Whew, he's got an eternal purpose. I saw the holy city of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Uh, and we'll skip through some of this, but you come all the way down, if you would please, to verse 22. And again, the purpose of Christ, get this, the purpose of Christ here in verses 22 through 27, uh, verses 22 through 27, talk about the purpose for Christ, but not only for the purpose of Christ, but the purpose also for these kings. I think, think it's going to be kind of interesting. Gives you a little perspective of, of eternity. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So one of the purposes of Christ in the, in the New Jerusalem is the temple idea. Okay, temple. It's right there. Verse 23, the city did not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. So the glory of God purpose is going to give light. And, the, and Jesus, the Lamb, is the Lamb. So one of the purposes of Christ in heaven is He's going to be the vessel by which we are going to experience God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Right there, purpose of Jesus. Verse 24, there's going to be nations. There's going to be nations. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor. wonder where that comes from. See, the idea is, is we have a world here. And however you think of this world and however you think of heaven, I have no idea. I don't have any answers for that. But I know this much, that the, the, the world in which we live and the economy and the structure of those kind of things, that's not the way that God intended it. Now, that does not take away purpose. That does not take away meaning in my life. That does not take away the purpose of man, that there's going to be some, which we can't describe, of this there. Okay? Now, last place I'll make you turn. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, every church. Now, let's think about this. He made it known. He signified it. What did Jesus signify? What did he sign? You got to get this. What did Jesus sign? What did Jesus sign through the messenger to John? What did Jesus sign through the messenger of John? He signed his unveiling of his self. And when he's unveiled, you see that which God gave him, which is the purpose of showing his servants what must take place right now. Who's his servants in chapters 2 and 3? These churches. So Jesus comes in sign and imagery language, and he unveils himself. Get a hold of this. He unveils himself for the purpose of, hey, this is what you're to look like, and you need to embrace this. You need to respond absolutely right now. And all of that, all of that is not just an earthly thing, but get this. There is an eternal consequence and plan to these seven churches. He ends every one of these unveilings with a statement about eternity. He ends, get this, he ends this unveiling, every one of these churches, he ends this unveiling with a statement about eternity. For instance, I want to read you just a couple of them. Chapter 2, verse 17. It's the church of Pergamum. Verse 17. He's unveiled himself. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's verse 12. Okay, he unveils himself. 
In verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. That we're going to get new names up there. We're going to have new names and the purposes of God in the eternities. So there is the unveiling of His person, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which has to take place right now. And if you respond to that and you overcome, there's going to be an eternal purpose and you're going to have a new name. wonder what mine will be. Chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verses 26 through 29, which is the next church. Thyatira, I think is how you pronounce it. Verse 26 says, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give him authority, listen to this, I will give him authority over the nations. That's purpose. I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule with them, or he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. I'm going to have authority. I wonder what the purpose of that authority is. Do you see how significant you are? See, the problem with, with some of the things that I'm experiencing in light of this passage is we, we tend to allow eternal... We tend to allow decisions that have eternal consequences to be dictated by temporal circumstances. Does that make sense? We tend to allow eternal consequences to be dictated by temporal circumstances. Because of what I'm going through here and because I don't see my life in light of His plan and, and have eternal destiny written all over me, because I don't see that in my life, I make, I make decisions based off of... Oh, Jesus comes to the churches and says, this has got to take place in your life now, which is temp temper. That church was present. Jesus comes and unveils and says, this is the will of God for your life. Respond now. Why? Because, and it's really interesting. It doesn't seem to fix too much of their problems now. I know the church at Smyrna who was going to get, you know, they were going to be, they were going to be killed. <laughs> Some of you are going to die. Respond. And they're probably thinking, so I won't die. Jesus says, no, you'll probably die. But there's an eternal purpose. <laughs> you must have not gotten that. Jesus comes to the church at Smyrna. They're going to die. Jesus unveils truth and they say, well, so I won't die? Doesn't have anything to do with here. See, I wonder if some of the things that are transpiring in my life may not do too much for me here, but man, you're not going to believe what they mean here. Man, do you know my son has eternal destiny, eternal purpose written all over him? That I cannot see him in light of this. The carpenters of my world have eternal destiny. The maintenance men of my world have eternal destiny. And I'm wondering if the whole idea of the first will be last and the last will be first is we tend to rank that stuff. Preachers, well, well, man, they're really, well, eternal destiny for them, but eternal destiny for the teacher who will see more teens day in and day out than I will ever see. The factory worker who will be a pastor to about seven or eight guys that he works with every day more than he will ever be a pastor. There is eternal destiny involved in the plan of God in our lives. 
and when He unveils truth. Yes, it may have something to do with here, but what I'm finding in the book of Revelation is He takes this imagery, He takes this language, and He says, what I'm unveiling to you in your life is absolutely so critical. Sometimes it does have temporal, you know, hey, it has temporal meaning, but you understand what's absolutely significant, the truth that I'm giving you, that it is going to shape the foundations of the new heaven and the new earth. There is eternal destiny. Let me give you one more real quickly. Chapter 3, verses 12. Verse 12. Just one verse, I guess. Verse 12 says, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar. I want to be a pillar. He will, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. <laughs> I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. Instead of wearing like a t-shirt that says like, you know, Detroit Red Wings, it'll be like the new Jerusalem or whatever it is. I'm going to be a pillar of my God. You like that one? Let me give you one more. Verse 21, last one. Church of Laodicea. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. I have eternal purpose. Stamped in the very fibers of my being. You may not think too much of me. Well, wish you'd start seeing kingdom kingdom minded you might think differently wouldn't it be something if you saw everybody in your church through the eyes of the kingdom Jesus fix my eyes on you before the foundation of the world all things hold together in your son all things have been brought about in your son all things find completion in your son and in your Son, from the found, before the foundations of the world, you created me with, e with eternal destiny in my being. That my life is just not the mediocre years of ministry that I have here. That my life has an eternal purpose. Jesus, I want to give myself tonight to that eternal purpose, which is somehow even being decided and played out while I live this week. I love you tonight, Jesus. I live in anxiety. I want to I surrender that to you tonight. I don't want to live in an anxiety that's produced by the temporal circumstances of my world. I want to live kingdom-minded. As my world deteriorates, the eternal purpose stamped on my life by you never deteriorates. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I haven't got to hang out with you and learn about you like I do with some teenagers' camps. I got to learn about a few of you, talked with a few of you, about some of the struggles you're having at your works, your workplace, some of the difficulties that you're having with your bodily drives, some of the circumstances that you're finding yourself in. What would happen if you begin to see yourself the way He sees you? See, what we've been talking about this week is giving ourselves to the eternal purposes of the One who created us. Realizing that the events in our life are orchestrated by Him and I rest, I relax, He knows. He knows what I'm going through. And He is bending my world. And by the decisions that I'm making now, 
they're affecting somehow the eternities. Because my world is not determined and not dictated by the, by the, by the just little bitty time that I spend here. My life is found in the eternal destiny in which He's dreamed before the foundation of the world. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We've had a lot of people seek every night and we certainly want that. I want to, I want to talk to you, those of you who have things in your life that are not put in perspective of the kingdom, of the eternal kingdom. Would you respond tonight? Would you say, Jesus, I'm tired of living my life in a temporal setting. And there is something about, hey, today is the only day you have and, and tomorrow has not yet come and live for today. And don't worry about the future. Hey, rest, absolutely. Rest and live in response to Him. But also know that your life is not the product and it's not, the, it's not surrounded, it's not determined, it's not explained by this, the small time frame in which we live. That some of the decisions that you're making, they have eternal consequences. I want to give you the opportunity to respond tonight. Jesus, I desperately have to see my life in light of the kingdom. You've signed it to me in Christ. As I open up the scriptures, I see that I have a purpose that's beyond being an evangelist, going to teen camps and camp meetings and revivals. I'm happy, Jesus. I'm living in response to You. I'm allowing Your plan to unfold in my life here. I want that to take place. But I also know, Jesus, that there is something bigger in store for me. Not bigger as different, but bigger in terms of expanded. I want to fit into Your purpose in the eternities. We want to seek You. Oh. Holiness is what I long.